The Women of Ill Repute, with your hosts, Wendy Mesley and Maureen Holloway. Wendy, you know we've met a few badass people on this show. In fact, we specialize in badasses, but we are about to talk to a woman who's been described as the baddest ass of the badasses. Her ass is so bad it should be in jail. (laughs) I think she's been everywhere but jail. But yeah, that's what they called Anne Medina, the baddest ass of all the badasses, when she was inducted into the CBC Hall of Fame. Kind of a big deal. And that was just last fall. She's the original fearless journalist reporting from Syria, Egypt, Nicaragua, Lebanon, wherever there's trouble. And Medina was there with her glasses and her bright jackets. Tough as nails in some respects, but so down to earth and so empathetic. I always think of her as being from the Middle East for some reason. And I guess it was because she was the bureau chief in Lebanon. I always think of her as being Canadian. But then researching her a bit, she worked for NBC and ABC as a reporter long before coming to Canada. She won a couple of Emmys. Kind of a big deal. Of all the awards, the Emmys are the most dangerous. They're they're so sharp. I think they're more dangerous than shrapnel, honestly. I'd still take one. Anyway, yeah, so she's got a couple. She produced documentaries for PBS, the BBC. She was a foreign correspondent for The Journal, among others. Remember The Journal? Of course. Yeah, CBC was going to like take over news and they brought together the National and the Journal. And then she was like, I'm tired of being in the field all the time. I'm going to be an anchor. And she was like a superstar. So they made her an anchor. She was head of Saturday Report and then on the National on Saturdays. And it was a very cool show. And then for some bizarre reason, they let her go. They like canned her. No. What? An amazing female journalist was let go by a major news corporation for no good reason? That never happens. (laughs) I don't know who you're referring to. It could, you know, could be someone else in this room. But anyway, Anne, she she went on. Nothing was going to stop Anne. She went on to run the Academy of Canadian Cinema and TV. She's been on the board at TV Ontario. She's been on the board at Actress. She's spoken in the United Nations. She's getting up there, but her ass is still pretty bad. Oh, I bet it's the worst it's ever been. (laughs) If mine is any example. (laughs) Well, yeah, just a few more squats. We'll just keep doing squats and we're, we're all great. But Anne, I mean, she's just, she doesn't like to talk about it, but we all do behind her back. She was like a huge inspiration to all journalists, male and female, but women in particular. And we, we all owe her a huge debt. So, uh, Hey, uh, we could hear you chuckling in the background. Anne. How are you doing? Hey, Anne, how's your ass? <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just checking my ass to see how bad it really is. I've got a bad ass because it just goes flat, you know, and this is the era where you got to have everything round. Well, I'm flat in the front and flat in the back, and I got to work on things. Anyway, you guys... I'm just so glad to be here because you laugh, you emote joy, and they're too rare these days, you know? Everyone gets so serious. Well, that's what I loved reading about you. I mean, I I remember you. We can talk about, you know, my childhood and how you were such a huge inspiration. You and Barbara Frum are probably the reason I'm doing what I'm doing. But what I loved researching about you was how you like to chuckle in the field. It was all, there was always like laughter. You were always looking for, you met lots of big people, uh, big names of the time, but it was like hanging out with the little people and, and finding ways to laugh. And I just, I loved that. Why, why is that so important to you? Well, it's, it's not that even it's important to me. 
it's important when you go in the field and you come across, let's say, a couple with nothing, nothing. Their house may have just been destroyed or they're living through a famine. And, you know, I have this silver bracelet I wear all the time. And so there'd be a joke where I'd take it off and they'd play with it. And then I'd pretend to grab it back and they'd laugh and smile. And I mean, they wanted a smile. They wanted a laugh. And in addition, sometimes if things got really tense, like one time I'm sitting in a little car going to see a very bad warlord or militia guy. And on my right is a guy with his Kalishnikov and squeezed to my right is another guy with a Kalishnikov. And in the Middle East, it's a sign of hospitality and friendship. You offer a cigarette. And these were Marlboro men. And I had medallion, the lightest cigarette that you can, you know, buy anywhere. And so I opened up the pack and I offered them a cigarette and they went, oh, yeah. And they started to puff and they had to suck. And then they had to suck some more. This is no marble. And they'd hold it up and they'd start laughing. And I'd laugh. And they'd laugh some more. And pretty soon the tension would just sort of dribble away. I mean, laughter people need. And besides, I love it. I mean, listening to your show and your giggles and and it's contagious, right? When you're laughing, some of your guests start laughing and it makes for a whole different experience. Do people find you intimidating because you're where you come from and your accomplishments and your toughness and your fearlessness could be seen that way? I don't find you intimidating, but should I? <laughs> Probably not. I don't know how other people see me, but, you know, when you see me, let's say I'm in the field and people are seeing me and I've got floppy shoes on and I've got a shirt that needs pressing and just, you know, maybe mud spattered jeans. I mean, there's nothing intimidating about that versus the gorgeous people I see on air. I've never thought of myself as, besides, I don't speak big words. I mean, I just have little words, basic words that everyone seems to understand. So there's nothing intimidating about my, you know, speaking part. So who knows? It was funny, like uh, Adrian Arsenault and Nala, yeah, two journalists who I deeply respect their work, and, the, and they spent a long time as foreign correspondents, years, decades after, after you did. And they, they talked about how, you know, you broke down barriers and you allowed them to do all this stuff. And, but there's this quote of you saying, no one ever told me I couldn't do what all the guys were doing. So you just did it. And yet, Mark Starovitz, who started the journal, which was like this huge deal that you worked for and, and a number of people lived and died for. But he said that you being in the field back in the 70s and 80s, that it was revolutionary. Will you please acknowledge that? No, I mean, you know, there weren't many of us, but I don't know. I just, 
I never planned to be a journalist. I never planned definitely to be a foreign correspondent, which in some ways I was, in some ways I wasn't. But I just thought, I want to be a reporter. I became a reporter. Oh, I want to be a correspondent, ABC. I became one. It wasn't like I was fighting for womanhood or fighting for this or that. I just, okay, what do I got to do to do it? It was very straightforward in my mind. You said you didn't set out to be a journalist or a reporter. You're highly educated. Harvard, University of Edinburgh, University of Chicago. Were you academically inclined or just love to learn? I fell in love with philosophy, if you can believe it, in 11th grade because of this wonderful Miss Rounder history teacher. And I majored in philosophy at Wellesley. I got an MA in philosophy at Chicago. I I'd finished all the work for a PhD in philosophy. I was going to be a philosophy professor and work for something called the American Law Institute in Summers, which you don't need to know about. But this was in Chicago in the 60s, where civil rights and anti-war and, you know, the Democratic Convention that was broken up with protests and police brutality. And I'm sitting there in this ivory tower. And I'd look at the news, and I may have been witnessing some of the demonstrations or whatever, and I looked at the news, and I said to myself, that's not what happened. And then later, I'd watch another local news. That's not what happened. And that's when I decided I would become a journalist. Totally unplanned. Quite often, it isn't (laughs) what happened. If you even know from the news what happened, because so much of the news is in the future tense. What's going to happen? We smart, wonderful, brilliant people will tell you, you dumb audience, what's going to happen. And of course, they're usually wrong, right? (laughs) You know, but I don't watch that much news. I read a lot. Because my blood pressure just goes through the roof when I, you know, watch a lot of the news. I mean, to me, and I've I've said this before, to me, reporting was fairly straightforward. It was, this is what I saw, and I show the audience. This is what I heard. This is what I know, not what I believe or my opinion, but what I know as fact. So here you go. And you guys viewing or listening, you decide what you want to make of it all. And these days, I'm being nudged to draw certain conclusions. And it's not just the right, it's the left and the right. And it's no longer straightforward. And it can be in very subtle ways. Like if you're the Trump people you say the Biden administration alleges. You know, right there, the little doubt is sort of inserted with that word allege. Whereas if they said, ah, the Biden administration accused or states, it's a very subtle difference. And the Globe and Mail had an article on DeSantis a few days ago all about him, but it was talking a lot about his don't say gay, you know, anti-wokeism. And they summarized 
his viewpoint and then right away went into paragraphs of all of those who disagreed with it and why they disagreed with it. And fair enough. But where was there even half a paragraph of those people who agreed with DeSantis's policies? And some of my capital L liberal friends have had it up to their gazulus with some of the wokeism. So it isn't just the far, far right, you know, nutcases, but you'd never know that reading that Globe article. It was sort of, they were all invisible. But it's even more than that. And if I could bring up like a far more fluffy piece of documentary, if you can call it that, I'm thinking of the Harry and Meghan documentary that they produced. <laughs> so first of all, right away, how is this going to be an even-handed account of anything? But I use that as an example of so much that's out there. You're a documentary producer and writer and host. There's no attempt anymore at even being even-handed. Things that are called documentaries don't even try to show you what may be true. It's all biased. That's not actually that new in one sense. And there was a time in the 80s and some very famous, you know, Canadian documentary makers. It became advocacy journalism. It had a title. And some of us said, no, that's not then a documentary if it's advocating something. But we were shut out. I mean, we were, I don't mean shut out, but they didn't have to say advocacy journal or advocacy documentary. It was a documentary. So there is a history there that worried me back then and definitely worries me now. Yeah, we seem to be going through a cycle of it just keeps getting worse. And, and yet, you know, I looked back at the induction ceremony for you, which was hilarious because you kept saying, is it over? We're like, please stop. Is it over? <laughs> <laughs> I know. Oh, please let it be over. <laughs> the women of ill repute. But they ran clips of some of your stories. And I, you know, I remember them from the time. I think people would watch that now. I think people like are screaming for, tell me what's going on and what the facts are and take me inside the life of somebody, you know, who is living this. Like, why don't we have that? I don't know. Can you solve all the problems of the world? <laughs> I can't even access them on CBC. I'm waiting finally because when they told me, oh, you're being inducted and all of that, I said, wait a minute. You fired me? <laughs> now you <laughs> inducted me. I mean, this is crazy. Anyway, okay. I'll accept, I said, on one condition, that I could get copies of some of my documentaries. And, you know, now whoever you are doesn't matter. They will allow you to stream it, but not to record it. And anyway, it's a mess. Finally, they're now trying to get me some of my documentaries. But I agree with you, Wendy. I mean, when the journal started, Starwitz is the first to admit it, they thought the star of the show would be the interviews, and they'd be documentaries little. And we were sent out to do six minutes and eight minutes, not 20 minutes and 40 minutes that it grew into the documentaries, there was an appetite. And 
although people see me maybe, yeah, in Beirut, etc., some of my favorite items was when I did Harvest 82 or Harvest 84, whatever it was. And we got in a van and we went across Canada from Winnipeg, you know, to Vancouver, talking to farmers during the harvest. It was magical. And I'm sure audience would love that now. And we picked a high school in Saskatoon for graduation with all the drunken partying and gossiping and dressing up and Oh, did Harry invite you to the prom? And make real things that, okay, CBC, you want to hear and tell Canadian stories, or why don't you get back to doing it? Yeah, well, I thought it was hilarious that you said at the ceremony, you fired me and now you're honoring me. So to me, you were like one of the world's greatest foreign correspondents, as much as you may not want to admit it, you were. And then they made you an anchor and Saturday Report. It was such an honor to file for that show. And I think you said in the ceremony, you said something about it was your voice. You have quite a distinctive voice. Maybe it's the medallions, but. Strident was the word that my firer, John Owen, kept on. I didn't use that word. Yes, you did, kiddo. But, you know, there's a thing. You weren't officially fired, Wendy. We don't need to go into the details, but. Oh, I don't know. I was going to ask you both because you both love the CBC and you've both been treated shabbily by the CBC and it's something you have in common. But I don't think I was going to ask you how you both feel about the CBC at this point in your careers. Well, I I don't want to go necessarily to the CBC thing, but I belong to this women's organization all over the world. And the Canada chapter decide they want to have a group of, quote, courageous conversations. And the first one they proposed was when you want to change jobs, you know, tips on what you can do or should do or whatever. I said, we should have a section on what about being fired? And they said, hmm? I said, and I'll give tips of what you do when you're fired. And You know, there were headlines saying CBC dumps Medina. So how do you get out of that? And they, oh, that's a great idea. And I waited and I waited. And they got back to me saying, well, a lot of people don't want to let it be known that they got fired. And I'm going, oh, come on. I mean, there must be some. And there are tips, you know, like the question we all hate. What are you doing? Uh, you still aren't? No, I do mix and match. And, oh, what's that? Well, I sometimes do speeches. I, you know, I'm writing some stories. Anyway, it shuts them up. And then you just go on. But there are all kinds of little things. But there, as Wendy and you must have read about, Maureen, there is a club. I mean, whether it's Pamela Wallen, Hannah Gartner, Lisa, obviously. I mean, I don't know. It's a growing club, sadly. It's funny. You know, I always said that I didn't want to be one of those bitter people who hated the CBC. And I obviously ended up in a place where I was feeling bitter. 
because I don't think what they did to me was was right. And I don't think what they did to you was right. But it was a pretty amazing, it was a horrible end, which I don't think either of us deserved. But it was a pretty wonderful place to work. And I'm very grateful now for, you know, for the decades of, of stuff that and, and you got to file documentaries that weren't six minutes long. So it's uh, mixed feelings. I never wanted to be bitter, but <laughs> I turned out being a little, a little bitter. You know, you can be bitter about certain people. I mean, you know, I ran into a number of smocks. <laughs> but CBC is a whole different animal. I mean, I was ill-treated by this person or that person, and frankly, they weren't worth worrying about. CBC is. And... They did a whole lot of things right. They've done a whole lot of things wrong. But being down on one event, whether it's, you know, Pamela or Anne or Wendy or whatever is one thing, being down on the whole organization is something else. And sometimes I am down on it, having nothing to do with that kind of experience of being fired having everything to do with the kinds of programming they might put on or the kinds of programming they're not putting on. That's where the needle heads points to in my book. Let's go back to when you were in the field. Let's go back to the good old days. You keep on saying good old days, and I get more people say, when I was a baby, I used to watch you on TV. (laughs) Tell them to schmuck off. (laughs) <laughs> I know what you're going to ask. Wendy and I have this preoccupation. We talked to Lindsay Adario, who's a, a you know Pulitzer Prize winning photojournalist and covers all the war zones that you would have found yourself in these days. And we wanted to know what her was in her go bag. So what did you, we found people bring their own coffee machines all the time. Was that the case with you? Absolutely. And my carton of medallion and a few pairs of underwear. And in those days, a Walkman. And when you play, have a couple of tapes of music, yes, it helps you when, I won't quite say when you're in your tent at night, but some of the places we overnighted were, you know, fairly basic. But the Walkman actually got us passage into Beirut right after the invasion when Israel invaded Lebanon. And you couldn't fly in. And there was this rusty old tanker we finally got on to from Cyprus. And we got on board and we were sleeping on the deck. And I had my Walkman with the little headphones. And no one spoke English. They were all Egyptian or whatever, Mahmed. And they were actually Christian gun runners, but that's a whole nother story. Watching Bugs Bunny in Arabic, which is another whole story. But anyway, they wanted to listen to my Walkman. Fast forward, we're leaving. We're desperate to find some way out two, three weeks later. There's the ship. And we're on the wharf, and I hold up the Walkman. And two of the guys yell, ah, ah, and they waved us on board, and that's how we got home. Thank you, music. If you were still in the field, would you go to Ukraine now? I mean, I think of the danger that you put yourself in 
and I mean, I'm not talking about whether you would do that now, you know, at your venerable age, with all due respect, but if you could, would you? Absolutely. Though I wouldn't do the kinds of things that your previous person did, your previous interviewer. Yes, Lindsay at Dario. I don't mean it's in your blood, but, you know, there's that story. And it's an amazing story. And, yeah, I'd probably want to go. And what people don't talk about, though, is I'm single. Forget the three husbands I tossed aside over the years. (laughs) So there's a certain freedom. But when you go to these places, and many do, obviously many guys with kids at home and a wife at home, what are you putting them through? I mean, it must be hell to be home worrying about somebody in the Ukraine or, but thank God enough people do it. And we used to talk about this with some of my crew members and, you know, what's it like? And of course, they've got a wife back home who is doing 10 jobs with kids and schools and house isn't falling down type of stuff. It's hard on them and it's hard on the people missing their kids in the field. But people forget about that. We don't talk that much. That is a very big factor to consider in my life. So maybe there are, I don't know, There's. I was going to say two types of people, but there's obviously more than two types. But when it comes to journalism, There are the people who they want to have a home life. They want to have kids. They want to look after the house. And then there are the people like you and Lindsay Adara who are just like, I got to be where the action is. I got to tell those stories. And she was saying that it was like all of her male colleagues, not all, but most of her male colleagues had somebody at home waiting for them, as you've just spoken of, but was really difficult. I mean, now she's found somebody who is supportive of, of her running around and she's having kids and he looks after the kids for the most part. But yeah, it, it was funny. I don't know whether it was in the, my research or in the induction ceremony, but you talked about how your parents were having their 50th wedding anniversary and you were like, I'd like to offer something, but not really very good at that. <laughs> yeah, about making a commitment to one person forever. You've made other commitments, but... Uh... About marriage, you mean, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> your first sense... I didn't have to go where the action is. That was never really part of my DNA, where some of the guys I worked with, when they came back from the Lebanon to the Beiruts, they wanted to get back there quick. I didn't. I don't mean I didn't want to go back or I did want to go back. It was just like, you know, covering Harvest was just as satisfying a story as being in Beirut. And I always said to all these students and whoever asked, and, you know, the story has got to drive you. And if you want to be a foreign correspondent, oh, it's so sexy, and you go to all of these places. I mean, go ahead, guy or girl, but that ain't journalism. The story, and I, in 77, happened to be sent to Israel, and I fell in love with the story of the Middle East. It was so complex. It was rich. The people, and I'm not just saying Israelis, the Palestinians, and then, you know, 
in Lebanon, Druze, Christians, Shias, you know, Sunni, whatever. The story I fell in love with, and that led me to be where there was bang, bang. But the bang, bang never attracted me. That was never part of my DNA. Do you still smoke medallions? (laughs) No, but I still smoke, but they don't make them anymore. (laughs) No, a lot of brands have fallen by the wayside back in the day. Well, presumably there are fewer people to smoke them. And good old Canada, they decide they're going to have one size package fits all. So my little slim capris that are the lightest nicotine and tar, like medallion, gone. You have to smoke a stronger cigarette. Thank you, Health Canada. (laughs) You got to. And I know this may seem like a weird question, but I hope somebody asks me this in 20 years. What's next? (laughs) Let's see. Well, first of all, it's got to be something I didn't plan. You know, five years ago or something, I was asked to do a podcast. So I figured it all out, what equipment I needed and downloaded software and did the six interviews that I was requested to do and had a ball doing it, discovering, you know, I did the editing, I got the recording and I made some major mistakes, surprise, surprise. So I don't know. And some people say, well, you're going to write a book. I am writing my little stories. That's the way I frame them, because it's it's like you got to go work out, Anne. So then they do this workout plan that's going to take two hours, and you don't do it, right? You don't start it. It's so awesome, so large. So I may turn into a book. I don't know, but I'm now just writing my little stories. And, you know, who knows what's going to come up. The history television, when that that came out of the blue, totally out of the blue. So who knows? And you say, what's next? As if I do have a plan, I don't. But you're open to suggestions. Yeah. And you have, as much as you hate to acknowledge it, you have been an inspiration. You did open doors. You did break down barriers for, for so many people. I remember... You may not remember this one, but as a kid, I reached out to you and said, I'm going to get some books for Christmas. What books should I read? I don't think you remember that one, but you do remember. I mean, I mentioned to Anna Maria Tremonti, who was a friend of mine, that I was talking to you. And she says, oh, she gave me such great. Everybody says that you give great advice and you told great stories. So I just, I guess I just want to say thank you because you were a huge, you are a huge deal for so many of us. Well, When people like you, and you were a young journalist, and I remember one time when you were offered your own show in Ottawa, and I sort of said, don't take it, because that will give you a sidetrack away from journalism. You'll become this entertainer, so to speak. But when you come up to me or someone else, I get juiced. I'm getting feedback from a younger generation. I love that. And I think we need more mixing of the generations where, you know, I'm learning from young people and maybe they're learning a few things from me, but it's a two-way street. And that, to me, is the magic. 
Well, I've loved talking to you. I, we got to wrap soon, but Anna, you just uh, thank you for everything. We, ne- we never talked about your love of birds. That'll have to be another conversation. Next time. <laughs> and the tattoo, the tattoo you got at 70, another time, maybe. <laughs> maybe with video, too. Well, guys, you guys are both such charmers and fun and so accomplished in your own ways. Talk about, you know, maybe CBC Wendy will call you up in a couple of decades and surprise you. (laughs) (laughs) Who knows? But a delight. And I am humbled the fact that I'm now a woman of ill repute. Yay! Damn right you are. Thank you, Anne. Thank you. We love you. The Women of Ill Repute with Wendy Mesley and Maureen Holloway. Available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or at womenofillrepute.com. Produced and distributed by the Sound Off Media Company. I'm Connie Teeson, the host of Broadcast Dialogue, the podcast. We focus on Canada and the challenges facing Canadian radio and TV, as well as highlighting those moving the industry forward from podcasting and streaming to new broadcast tech. Check us out at broadcastdialogue.com or your favorite podcast app.